Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Amos, chapter number 4. Amos, chapter number 4. What a blessing to be with you this morning. I've got to admit to you, I'm still a little lock-in, hungover. Amen? So uh, if, if, I, if I start uh, gibbering and jabbering, um, I, it's not speaking in tongues. Amen? I'm just probably getting ready to fall over and pass out. So you just be sure and pray for me this morning. Amen? What a blessing to see you this morning. You excited to be here? You seem like you're trying to figure me out or I'm figuring you out, one of the two, amen? Let's go ahead and just have our hearts open to the Word of God this morning, amen? Amos chapter number 4 this morning. We've been sort of preaching through the book of Amos a little bit on Sunday nights and last Sunday morning we decided to switch it up and uh, we preached Sunday morning last on uh, the book of Amos there in chapter number 3, verse 12 about the shepherd. And uh, this morning, if the Lord will help us, I want us to uh, try to take up a familiar text in the Word of God, and I want us to see what the Lord has to say to us this morning from it. We'll read the entirety of this chapter, it's just 13 verses, and we'll use all of it in the preaching of God's Word this morning. So let's begin reading in verse number 1, Amos chapter number 4, verse number 1. The prophet says this, Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. The Lord God hath sworn by His holiness that, Lo, the days shall come upon you that He will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Ye shall go out at the breaches, every cow at that which is before her. Ye shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord." Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. Verse 6 is arresting. It says, And I also have given you cleanness of teeth, in all your cities, and want of bread in all your places. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And also I have withholden the rain from you, when there were yet three months to the harvest. And I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I've smitten you with blasting and mildew. When your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses. And I have made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel. Because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. For lo, he that formeth the mountains and createth the wind and declareth unto man... What is his thought that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth? The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a privilege it is to be here. A lot of places that we could have found ourselves, but oh, by your grace, we're here in your house this morning. 
I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would have liberty, that He would be able to open each and every heart, take the Word of God and apply it rightly to our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would have our hearts open unto Him, that He'd not have to pry them open, Lord, but that we would willingly open our hearts and lives Father, that we would receive Your Word, that we would hear the truth of it, that it would be applied miraculously and eternally into our minds and into our souls. And Father, that You would win the victory today in our lives. For Father, we know that we must have more of You, Lord, and You must have more of us. We must be more like Christ. We must see our lives made more into Him, His image. And Lord, only by that will we find joy and contentment and peace. Only in that will we find that our life has had meaning and purpose. So Lord, I pray that You would accomplish these things. And I pray You'd do it in such a way that men would have to stand back and say, that's God that has done that. Lord, if there's any lost and undone, let today be the day. Let them not walk out of here uh, in the bondage and the gall of iniquity any longer. Let them trust in Christ and be delivered, be saved, and leave this place knowing that heaven's their home with a new life and a new heart. And Lord, with a new joy in their soul. And we'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we love You. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have preached through the book of Amos, we have tried to keep at the forefront of our minds the audience that Amos is prophesying to. When you study the Word of God, there's a few things you always need to try to settle down before you move any further in studying it. You need to have an understanding who God used to pen that passage. Now, if you're a Bible believer, you know and I know that the Holy Ghost is who wrote the Word of God. But there are different men in whose hand God put the pen throughout the years and that God used to record His Word and His truth. And so you always want to find out who pinned down the, the book. And in our case, it is the namesake. It is a prophet by the name of Amos. You always want to find out who he's prophesying to. This time in uh, Israel's history, they were two different kingdoms. The southern kingdom of Judah comprised of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And then the northern ten tribes made the northern kingdom. Uh, and uh, often it's called Israel or Ephraim in the Word of God. Amos, though he was a man from the south. Somebody say amen there. I said he was a man from the south. Though he was a man from the south, he was prophesying in the north. He was prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel. And then you essentially want to know what the message is. What did he have to say to him? And uh, Amos was one of the prophets that beat out the steady drumbeat, the steady tempo of God's impending judgment. Uh, we could summarize what God was saying to Israel in this, that if they did not repent and turn to the Lord, God was going to send an adversary, an enemy that would destroy them. That's exactly what happened. Just as God said it would, the Assyrian army came and carried away the northern ten kingdoms, obliterated their national identity, and uh, destroyed them as a kingdom. So getting an understanding of, of what was written and when it was written and who pinned it down and who it was written to is key to understanding understanding the book of, uh, of Amos and any other portion of the Word of God. And so we have walked through these first three chapters considering carefully the message that God has for His people. But this morning, I, I, I'm sure you caught it. I, if you're familiar with your Bible, you, you already know which verse sticks out. and uh, It just sort of arrests you. It sort of hits like a bomb in the midst of the text of Scripture. In verse number 12, after a lengthy description of God's grace, God says, this is the some result. He says, therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, notice these next four or five words, prepare to meet thy God. I want to take a moment this morning and preach to you really this, this chapter, but 
I want us to have in our mind this theme and this thought, preparing to meet God. You know, as we study through the Word of God, we find that it is the destiny of every human being to stand before God. One day you will stand before God. One day I will stand before God. And I think it behooves us as human beings, as as created, uh, part of God's creation, to consider how and in what condition we will stand before the God that has created us. When we read through this passage, I find that it basically divides itself into three portions. And notice them with me this morning. In the first five verses, we have the Lord's charges against Israel. He lays out the evidence. He states His case. He declares boldly what His issue is with the kingdom of Israel. Now, somebody's thinking in their heart right now, well, preacher, that's good, but I'm not an Israelite. I'm not living in that day, and I'm not living in that time. But you know, God has never changed. And the things that God... God hated then, God still hates today. The things that offended God then uh, still offend God today. Uh, the Old Testament ends essentially with this promise that He is the Lord God and He changes not. Now, I understand a lot of things have changed since the day that Amos pinned this down. Uh, but one thing that has not changed is who God is. He's the same God that He was then. He hates the same things, He loves the same things, and He is offended by the same things. So what we find in this passage that God is troubled at, is is offended at, feels transgressed over, are the very same things that God still hates today. And they basically are twofold. In verse number 1, we find an interesting phrase. Look at verse 1 with me. Uh, Amos begins by saying, Hear this word, and notice this next phrase. He says, Ye kind of Bashan. Now, unless you're a a very careful student of God's Word, you probably have no clue what that means. (laughs) If I hadn't read commentators, if I hadn't read wiser men than me that could define and describe things, I wouldn't know what it would mean because this is not a phrase that we would use very commonly today. But you know, something that does ring a bell is that word Bashan. In fact, there's another place in the Bible that this place called Bashan is described. And that's in Psalms chapter number 22 when the Bible describes the Lord Jesus and His suffering and says that the men that assaulted and afflicted the Lord Jesus, the men that beat upon Him and buffeted Him and spit upon Him, that they gaped at Him or they raged at Him like the bulls of Bashan. Bashan was a location in the land of Israel that was renowned for its cattle production. And that word kind simply means a cow. So here's what Amos does. Now listen, you may not be offended yet this morning, but buckle up, we're probably about to get offended. Because he looks at this group of people and he describes them as cows of Bashan. Now, it would have been bad enough to describe them as cows, but Bashan wasn't just known for any kind of cow. They were known for meat cattle. And they were known for good meat cattle. How many of you know this, that the thing that makes good meat cattle is that it's a big cow. It's quality meat, and there is a lot of it. So he didn't just call them cows. He called them fat cows when he spoke to them in verse number 1. Now, this is not a schoolyard insult. But God is being descriptive about them spiritually. And here's what God is describing. The first charge He lays against them is their cattle-like character. 
Now let's stop and think about that for just a moment. He calls them kinds of Bashan. Fat cows, indulgent cows. Now a meat cow really doesn't exist for any purpose except to grow fat. That's what it's there for. It's there to grow big. It's there to grow fat. It's there to produce meat. It's not a milk cow that produces something for someone else to consume. It's not an oxen that you would yoke up to. It's not a mule that you would harness. Its existence is solely based upon its ability to eat and eat and consume and consume. And when God looked at the people of Samaria, He said, that's exactly what I see in you. He said, your only interest is in what you can consume. The first thing He calls out is their decadence. They lived a life that was self-centered and self-indulgent. They were only interested in what they could draw unto themselves, what they could have unto themselves. Can I ask you a question this morning? If your life is no bigger than what you can consume, I would posit to you, you probably don't have much of a life. I'm not talking about the food we put in our mouth, although we probably all do with a little less of it or a little better of it. But I'm talking about how we live our lives. Is your life only about what you can get and not what you can give back to the Lord? You know, there's a lot of Christians, that's a lot of their their problem, is they live their life only thinking about what they can get from God. I've heard them throughout the years, and and you may have heard preachers talk about when you're a pastor, you'll have people come in, and one of the first things they'll ask you is, Preacher, what do you have for me and my family? Now listen, I do believe the church ought to serve uh, the, the, the people. I believe we ought to try to tailor our ministries in a way that can most effectively benefit the spiritual well-being of the people that attend the church. I'm not here to fuss at you. I'm here to help you. But I do want you to understand this thing ain't about what you and I can get out of it. It's about what we can give to the Lord through it. The church is not a consumer business that is designed to tailor to your wants or uh, whims. It is designed as a place where we may offer ourselves a living sacrifice unto God, holy, acceptable unto the Lord. It's a place where we can take our lives and lay it on the altar of service for God. I'm saying it ain't about you, it ain't about me, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and how we can live for Him in this wicked world. So he describes their decadence. He said, you're like, you're like these cattle whose only purpose of existence is in consuming. Number two, he describes their depravity. He said, because of this, they oppress the poor, they crush the needy, and they say to their masters, bring and let us drink. In other words, their only interest was in how they could, they were willing to step on anybody to get what they need. Back a couple, uh, I don't know if this is going to have anything to do with the sermon, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, back a couple uh, months ago, I, I got a buddy that lives in a place where they got hogs, and I'd never been hog hunting, and I decided I wanted to go kill a hog. And so me and him, we went hog hunting, and uh, I had my brother with me, and, and there was me and, and my buddy and my brother and the guide, and, and we started stalking these pigs, and, you know, they travel in herds of about, you know, 30 or 40 of them, and you're out there hunting in the pitch black. You're not out in the middle of the day, at least not the way we did it, and we're out hunting at night and uh, we tracked a herd of pigs we finally found them they were mingled in the midst of a herd of cattle and uh, I, I wanted because I'm because I'm a great brother I wanted my brother to get the first shot um, because I'm just that kind of a person and uh, I, I said Ty why don't you go and I, I want you to I can come back up here in time but I want you to be able to get a shot so he goes and, and he and he plugs one man I mean he put it right down on the ground and uh, I said okay now it's my turn so me, me and the guide, we started sneaking through this cow herd. And now I was raised around cattle. My granddaddy had cattle. They ran our, on our land. Cows don't scare me, you understand. Uh, they don't bother me. But we're moving through this cow herd, and it is pitch black. Let me tell you something. There are more noises at night than there are during the day. Just, just sonically, there are more noises exist. 
And so we started moving towards this herd of pigs. And I started hearing this noise coming up behind. And I turned around and shine a light. There's a cow following me. And I thought, well, he'll, he'll, he'll move on here in a second. So we just, we just keep stalking forward. And then I heard some more noise. And I looked back and there was like two, three cows following and we just keep moving forward through this cow herd. And, and, and next thing I know, man, it's starting to get loud. And I look around, and, and we're moving as a herd towards these pigs. <laughs> Me, the guide, and about 25 cows are moving towards these pigs. And, and you know, that, that normally don't bother me, but I was thinking to myself, I was thinking, you know, I don't know these cows. Like, cows don't bother me, but I don't know these cows, and they don't know me. And I don't know but what I'm about to step between a cow and, and her calf or something. I don't know. There could be a bull out here that I don't know about. I just, I have no clue. But then I thought, well, man, it's okay. The God, they own the land, and, and, and he probably knows these cows. And then I remembered him saying, you know, these aren't even our cows. Somebody else leased these cows to us, and we don't even know who these cows these are, really. And so here I am, pitch dark, moving with the herd, towards this herd of pigs, and I was just waiting. You know why? Because, I, you know what made me nervous? Because one of them cows, all it would have took is just to lean over and he could have swacked me in a heartbeat. It wouldn't have took much for him to crush me. He wouldn't have had to put much of his weight upon me, and he could have crushed me. They could have trampled me. Any number of things could have happened. And you know, I never even shot a pig. You see, the... Here, here's what Amos is describing. He's describing these people that, that like, like cows that just consume, that just get bigger and bigger and bigger, have no concern for the people they have to step on in order to get where they need to be. They have no concern for the people that they crush in the pursuit of their decadence and in the pursuit of their consumption. You know, it starts to sound a little bit like some Christians that I've known and, and maybe, maybe the kind of Christian I've been in my life at times where we get so consumed with ourselves that all we can see is what we desire and can't look outside of us and see the needs of anyone else. He describes their depravity, but then he describes their destiny. Look at verse 2. He says, The Lord God hath sworn by His holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you that He will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Now think about that for just a moment. Whenever you take something with a fish hook, it can only go where the line pulls it to. It cannot swim free. It cannot get away. As long as that hook is set, it's going to go exactly where the man with the reel in his hand is standing. They have no choice in the matter. And he is even more vivid in this description in verse 3. He says, "Ye shall go out at the breaches, at the open places in the wall, at the doors in the wall. He says, every cow at that which is before her. The description is this, that the children of Israel, like these cows, they had lived like these uh, cows, they had behaved like these cows, and now they were going to be led to slaughter like these cows. Almost like a fish on the end of a hook, or like a cow that's being led uh, down, the, uh, down, a, down a path, uh, being loaded up onto a truck, or being led into a slaughterhouse. Here's what God was saying, you've set yourself on a path, and there's no deviating from it except one way, and that's turn around. And go backwards. Can I tell you something this morning? We ain't even really preaching yet, but can I tell you this this morning? Hey, listen, we better recognize that our life is on a path. We're living a certain way. We're behaving a certain way. There are consequences to the way we live. There are consequences to the choices that we make. Let us not think that just because God loves us that we are going to be exempted from all the consequences of our sin, of our disobedience. It shouldn't surprise us. Listen, if you walk a path, it shouldn't... Listen, if you go, if you start going down I-75 South, don't be surprised when you hit Chattanooga. If you're headed down a path in your life that leads to a destination, to a place of destruction and heartbreak and broken 
hood. Don't be surprised when it leads you there. So he describes their cattle-like character. And then verses 4 through 5, he starts to describe their rotten religion. Verse 4, he says this, Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. Now, a little context is necessary there. We might read that and say, well, that don't sound so bad, preacher. But I want you to notice that in these two verses, God describes the nature of their false religion that they practiced in the northern kingdom. And we basically notice a couple problems, about three problems with it. Notice first off, he says, at Bethel and at Gilgal. You might say, well, what's the problem with Bethel? What's the problem with Gilgal? Simply this, that neither of them are Jerusalem. Remember in the Old Testament, God chose Jerusalem as the place for His temple to be. He chose Jerusalem as the place where He'd put His presence and where He'd sit down and and dwell amongst His people. Uh, But the Bible teaches us that when Jeroboam split off the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom, uh, he didn't want to go into Jerusalem because now that was in enemy territory. So instead, he established his own false form of worship in the northern kingdom. And they built altars in places like Bethel and Gilgal and, and Dan and Samaria where they would worship their false gods. By the way, it's interesting. I didn't talk about this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it now. You know what they worshiped? They worshiped a golden cow. Isn't that interesting? It reminds you of this. Listen, what you worship is what you become. You worship the Lord Jesus Christ, that's going to make you more like Him. You worship yourself, you're just going to keep looking like yourself. You worship a false god, you worship consumerism and materialism, you worship those things, that's what your life will become. They worship these golden calves in these places. And here's what God's doing. He's employing one of the great, uh, one of the great literary and, and, and psychological tools ever invented. You know what it is? It's sarcasm. God's saying, go ahead and go to Bethel and go ahead and practice your religion because that's what you're going to do anyway. Go ahead and go to Gilgal. And go ahead and do what you want because that's what you're going to do anyway. You know, one of the greatest uh, forms of judgment God can pour out upon us is to let us just do as we please and to leave us alone in it. You know, in the book of Hosea, when God describes something similar like what Amos does here, He describes all the things He had done to try to get Israel's attention. You know what God finally says? He finally says, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and you've not listened, you've not returned, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And you know where it finally ends? God says, so I will go. God's saying, you want to live that way? I'll let you live that way. You want to wreck your life? I'll let you wreck your life. And I'll, in my mercy and grace, I'll pick up the pieces when you finally wake up and come back to me. But I will not strive. My spirit will not always strive with man. He says, eventually, I'll just let you do as you please. God says to the children of Israel, go to Bethel, transgress at Gilgal, multiply transgression. Here's what he's describing. He's describing their religion as a religion of convenience and self-will. Why did they worship there? Because they didn't want to make the trip to Jerusalem. Why did they worship there? Because they wanted their own place of worship. Why did they worship there? Because they wanted to worship in their own way. Now, if that don't sound like a lot of of quote-unquote Christianity today and certainly all of the world religions of today, I don't know what does. It's built and centered around what's convenient, what's easy, what's comfortable, what we like, what we think it ought to be, what we think God looks like and what we think God behaves like. And God says, that's the kind of religion I hate. God says, I don't want to be told who I am. You let me tell you who I am. I don't want to be worshipped the way you want me to be worshipped. I want to be worshipped the way I want to be worshipped. 
It was a religion of convenience and self-will. Number two, he says this, bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. Now, you know what they were supposed to do as faithful, obedient Israelites? They were supposed to bring their sacrifices every morning and they were to bring your tithes after every three years. But you know this, the ceremony in Judaism was supposed to be a byproduct of the sincerity of Judaism. In other words, they were to do these things because it was to evidence that out of a genuine heart they loved the Lord. God doesn't ask for any of your money or my money because He needs money. He just understands that for most of us, if you want to get to where our heart lives, you got to check in our wallet to find it there. God understands that for us to give of that which we have labored for is for us to give of that which is most precious to us. So when God asked them to give, it wasn't because He needed anything. It's because He wanted evidence that they were sincere in their worship of Him. And you know what happened? Uh, they lost the sincerity, but they kept the ceremony. They're not worshiping God the way God wants. They're worshiping at Bethel and Gilgal. They're worshiping a golden calf. Uh, they're not living the way God wants. They're committing all sort of depravity. But still they kept on with their sacrifices every morning and their tithes after three years. Here's what he's saying. It was a religion of convenience and self-will, but it was also a religion of customs and ceremony. It was superficial. There was no depth to it. You know what they were doing? They were going through the motions. They were just doing what was expected of them because that's what was expected of them. They modified it and they molded and they morphed and transformed it into something that was convenient for them, that was palatable for them. They had created and concocted their own religion, but all oh, they were faithful to it. God says, if all it is is customs and ceremonies, go ahead and just keep your customs and ceremonies. I'm not interested in it. So it was a religion of customs and ceremonies. And then verse 5, he says, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. In the Old Testament, they weren't to offer leaven with anything. Leaven, we're told in the New Testament, God used that to picture what sin is like. He described the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in the New Testament as leaven, as something sinful, something corrupting and polluting. He says, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. He said, your religion is a religion of corruption and self-promotion. In other words, you're not giving that which is pure. You're not giving what I want. You're just giving what's left over. You're just giving what you think ought to be given. And you're not doing it so that you might be seen of me, but you're doing it so that you might be seen of men. Uh, you know what I'm going to call this? I'm going to call it celebrity Christianity. All they were interested in is the applause of men. These are the charges that God lays out. And then notice there is a relentless barrage of truth in verse 6 down to verse number 11 we find that God did not just simply leave His people alone. Instead, He began to do what a loving Father does. He began to chasten them. And that's what we find. Not only the Lord's charges, but we find the Lord's chastening in the following verses. And God systematically describes the things He did to try to get their attention. Aren't you glad God doesn't just leave us alone? He'll try to get our attention first. Aren't you glad God loves us? If you've raised kids, you know what this is like. Even if you haven't, you probably know what it's like. Uh, that when you see them doing something wrong and you correct them, you're not doing it out of hate or out of spite or out of pettiness, but because you want what's best for them. The Lord's the very same way. He chastens us. He punishes us. Not, uh, not out of retribution, not out of spite, but because He wants our life to be pleasing unto Him and He wants our life to be pleasant for us. Look at what He says. We find sort of a list. In verse number 6, we find that God sent deprivation. He said, I have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your 
places. He said, I made sure that you were in want of things. Why would He do that? So they'd come to Him and pray and seek help from Him. Verse number 7, we find that God sent drought. He said, I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. In other words, when there should have been rain, there wasn't rain. He said, in fact, I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. So you wouldn't think this was just a normal drought. He said, one piece was rained upon and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. Of course it did. There was no water. It dried up. What did they do? So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Verse number 9, he tells us he sent devouring. He said, I have smitten you with blasting and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increase. He said, the palmer worm, in other words, a caterpillar or a a locust, a, a devouring pest was sent. The palmer worm devoured them. Verse number 10, we're told that He sent disease and death. He said, I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. You remember in the land of Egypt, the ten plagues that were sent upon Egypt so they'd let God's people go. And God said, I, what I did to Egypt, I began to do to you. And He said, your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses and I have made the stink of your camps to come up under your nostrils. In other words, they didn't even have room to bury them and they had to live with the smell of the decomposing bodies. Verse number Number 11, He finally sent divine judgment, supernatural judgment that could not be ignored or dismissed as just human affliction. He said, I've overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. You know what I notice when I read through that? I notice, number one, that there is a progression to God's chastening. And God didn't start off with the fire and brimstone. No, man, He started off with the cleanness of teeth. Uh, you know what? Some of y'all pay good money to have your teeth cleaned. Amen? Uh, listen, He started off with the cleanness of teeth. In other words, you know what He started off with? Just hunger pains. Just hunger pains. You know how you fix hunger pains? You eat some, right? That's not a big deal. Some of y'all are getting ready to go do it. And if I preach long enough, you may just get up and leave and go do it. I can hear some of y'all. Listen, I, I I just like noise in the, in the service. It don't matter to me if it's amens or stomachs growling. I, it helps me preach. Cleanness of teeth, man, that's not that big of a deal. But now fire and brimstone, that's a big deal. God started with something small. You know that's how God does in our lives. Very often He'll start with something small because His intention is not to destroy us. It's merely to direct us to get us where we need to be. But you know something else I notice in here? I noticed that there was a preservation in the chastening. Look at the very end of verse number 11. He said, you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. In other words, all that was left of their nation was just ashes after God's judgment. But God reached out and plucked out what was left over. You know, God's interest is not to annihilate us. Instead, it's to arrest our will to His will. So I see the process of chastening. It's interesting. Notice the progression of punishment and the resilience of their rebellion. God destroyed their stores of grain. They planted new crops. God withheld the rain. They pulled their resources and irrigated. God blasted and mildewed their crops and sent pests to devour them. They ate the remainder and pressed ahead in their sin. God sent disease and death to smite them and they simply ignored it. And God overthrew them with distinctly and manifestly divine judgments. But still they persisted in their sin. You know, it's, it's a wonder the resilience of a rebellious heart. It's a wonder the resilience of a rebellious heart. A rebellious heart will set itself on fire rather than see God glorified. They were willing to experience all this so that they might retain their self-will. What was the purpose of God's chastening? 
It sounds out over and over again. You can hear the pattern of it. God says, I did this. And then He says this, yet you have not returned. He said, I did this, yet you have not returned. I did this, yet you have not returned. You know, it kind of gets this idea in your head that God wanted them to return. That's what God lays the emphasis on. He says, I did this, but you didn't return. Evidently, God wanted them to return. You know, that's the purpose of chastening. God doesn't chasten us because He's mad at us. God chastens us because He wants us to return unto Him. In our life, when affliction and troubles and sorrows happen, I want you to listen carefully. People worry sometimes, well, preacher, you know, how do I know God's not trying to perfect me instead of trying to chasten me? Did you know that both of those things sort of go hand in hand? Do you know even if God is chastening you, He's still trying to perfect you? And listen, you'll never be harmed by a self-inventory of your spiritual life. In other words, it'd be far worse for you to come into trouble and to say, well, boy, I'm such a martyr and a victim. This is just me just glowing in, in my suffering for Jesus Christ. When God's really trying to say, dummy, you got sin in your life that I'm trying to deal with you about. It'd be far better off for you instead to say, you know, Lord, I don't know if there's anything in my life that needs to be dealt with, but you, you're certainly trying to get my attention. So God, show me, search me, see if there be any wicked or unclean thing within me. And show it to me, Lord. And to look at your life and examine it. God's not trying to destroy you. God's trying to draw you. He's trying to get them to return back to Him. But sadly, they did not. And so finally, in verse 12, we see the Lord's challenge. There's an interesting uh, literary tool that is used here. And the, the, the term for it escapes me. But there is an implicit thing here. Verse 12, Therefore, the Lord says, Thus will I do unto thee, O Israel. Now, God didn't say what He was going to do. Uh, but you find the same thing all throughout the Bible where there'll be times somebody will start to say something, they'll stop short because it's it's too horrific to think about. For instance, whenever Moses was talking to the Lord and asked God to forgive the children of Israel, and he said, Lord, uh, you know, uh, if, if you will, forgive them. Uh, and uh, if not, and then it just there's a line there. He doesn't go any further. And the idea was, it would be too awful, Lord, to think that you might destroy them. Uh, Here's what God's doing. He's saying, thus will I do unto you. And you might say, well, what is thus? What's God going to do? And God says, "It's, it's almost too horrendous to put it on pages. He says this in verse 12, Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God. Here's what God says. I've I've dealt with you. I've worked with you. I've chastened you. I've drawn you. And it has all been to no avail. So God says there is only one thing left. And that's for you to come stand face to face with me and to be judged for your sins. Can I tell you something? We find in this passage four things of note. First, we find there is a promise of this meeting. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.27, as it is appointed unto men wants to die, but after this, the judgment. God doesn't say, you're only going to come meet me if you do A, B, or C. He said, you are quickly going to come meet me if you do A, B, or C. Here's the reality. Every one of us is going to have to stand before God. Every lost individual is going to stand at the great white throne judgment. You won't stand there to find out if you're going to heaven or not because it's already determined if you've died without Christ that you've missed that opportunity. But rather, God is a just God and so He's going to bring before you every time that you have rejected, every sermon you sat through with a hard heart, every invitation that you distracted yourself away from, every time that the wooing hand of God wretched to you and you pushed it away will be brought back before your eyes before you are cast into the lake of fire. 
You say, well, preacher, that's terrible for the lost man, but I'm under grace. That's true you're under grace. You know what that means? That means that your master is not the law, your master is Christ. And one day you're going to answer to Christ. Paul said it this way, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So whether as a lost man at the great white throne judgment or as a saved man at the judgment seat of Christ, here's the truth. Every one of us is going to stand before God one day to give an account for our lives. Man, think about that. This life seems awful long. Some folks in this room can testify about how quickly life has passed by them. And let me tell you something. It's it, one day, just as real as I'm standing before you today, in some senses more real than the fact that I'm standing before you today, you will look God in the eyes. You will stand and He will ask you to give an account of yourself. The Bible describes a parable in the book of Matthew where a man is caught at a, at a wedding feast without a garment. And all that is highly figurative of, of righteousness and whether we stand ready to meet God. But the Bible says when the king looked at this man and said, why have you come without this garment that he spake? not a word. He didn't have any excuse. He didn't have any reason. A garment was offered to him, but he rejected it and pushed it away. That garment pictures the righteousness of Christ that's offered to you and offered to me. And when we stand before God, we'll stand without excuse before Him. How can we look at Calvary and say God didn't love us? How can we look at the testimonies of untold millions of Christians and say God couldn't save us? See, here's the, here's the cold hard truth of it. If you die and go to hell, it's because you've chosen to do so. You don't have to die and go to hell. People say, how can a loving God send someone to hell? I'd ask you this question. Uh, how could you, if you're so worried about it, push away God's offer of grace and redemption? Sounds to me like your only interest is to be able to shake your fist at God. Uh, let me go one further with you. So, well, how could a loving God send people uh, to hell? I would say this. A uh, loving God uh, gave His only begotten Son upon the cross of Calvary so that you and I wouldn't have to die and go to hell. Uh, God has literally moved heaven and earth. God has laid Himself upon an altar so that we don't have to die in our sins. God has done everything possible short of violating your free will to get you to go to heaven. One thing God won't do is He won't choose for you. You must choose. There's a promise of this meeting. We see that there is a provoking or a prompting of this meeting. He says to the children of Israel, because you've done this, I'm going to do this. That tells me this, that this day is certain, but that this day can also be hastened. We can hasten the day of this meeting if we spurn God's words and warnings bringing judgment upon us. I'm not going to go deep into this, but I, I, it ought to be touched on because it's really the, it's the meat and substance of the chapter. What he's saying is, I've tried to be patient, but you've pushed me away. And because of that, before prematurely, before it would have had to have happened, you have brought this as the only option upon dealing with you. All that I can do is let you leave this world and stand before me. Can I tell you that it's possible? And let me say this particularly to Christians. Particularly to Christians. Now, the Bible talks about uh, despising the Lord's table. And because of that, Paul said, some are weak and sick among you and, and some even sleep. And that's the word that the Bible uses to describe a believer that has died. Here's what he was saying. Because the way you've lived, God has, has laid some of you low. He's, he's robbed you of your life. He's allowed you to be snuffed out. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, some in the New Testament who uh, Paul said he had delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that they might learn not to blaspheme. Uh, the Bible tells us in the book of John that there is a sin unto death. I'm saying this believer, listen to me this morning. It is possible to trespass upon God's mercy and grace and leave Him with only the choice to cut our lives short. God, God understands better than you or I do how long eternity is and how short this life is. 
And why would God, if He loves us, and we have, have lived in such disobedience to Him that we are producing nothing beneficial for the cause of Christ. All we're doing is hurting our testimony. All we're doing is racking up things uh, that, that, uh, that are going to, uh, we're going to have to answer to. You ever heard of somebody cutting up their credit card? You know why they do that? That's not an act of meanness. That's an act of love. Because they understand sooner or later the bill's going to come due and something's got to happen to keep you from racking up debt. You know what God will do in your life and mine if all we're doing is just racking up sin debt? If all we're doing is just making a mess of our life? God loves us enough to reach down and cut the credit card of our life and say, I'm not going to let you keep destroying yourself. It'd be better for you to come on home to me than it would be for you to make a mess of your life. We see the provoking of this meeting, but then we notice there's a preparation for this meeting. He says, prepare to meet thy God. Now, what does that imply? Well, that implies that we're not born in a ready state. It implies not everybody's ready to meet Him. Boy, I wish they were. I wish they were. We'd all just preach on heaven and shout it out if that was the case, wouldn't we? I wish everybody was ready, but here's the truth. Men are not born ready to meet God. They're not naturally ready to meet God. They must be made ready to meet God. You remember there was a man that came to Jesus in John chapter number 3. A man by the name of Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he began to ask him, he began to flatter him and ask him religious questions. Master, we know that thou art sent from God. No man can do the things of that. And Jesus said, listen, yeah, I know how, I know who I am. But he said, I got a question for you. <laughs> Have you ever been born again? He said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He was saying, Nicodemus, you're not already okay. You've got to be made okay. You've got to receive the Lord as your Savior and be born again. You're born the wrong way. You see these bumper stickers that'll say born the right way the first time. That's their opinion, but it's not God's opinion. None of us are born the right way the first time. We're all born sinners. doesn't matter who it all is. It, hey, listen, it's your sainted grandma. It's your favorite preacher. It's your favorite loved one. It's your best friend. And it's you and it's me. We are all born sinners. And we don't just exist in a state right with God. We've got to be made right with God. That's why you don't have to teach a child to do wrong. They know how to do wrong. You've got to teach them to do right. They've got that impulse to do wrong, same as you and I do. We've got to be made right with God. We were born wrong the first time. We've got to be born again. We were born into sin. We've got to be born into the kingdom of God. How does that happen? Well, we ask Jesus to forgive us and save us. And that we trust upon Him. We believe on Him. And He creates a new creature out of us. That's why, that's why the language of being born is used. is because he, he makes us a new creature. We're like a new person. doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean we never make mistakes. doesn't mean we forget our name or our social security number. But what it means is we start walking around and living like a different person than who we were before. we got to be born again. And listen, child of God that's been saved, maybe you've been saved 10, 15, 20, 30, I don't know, 400 years. I don't know how old some of y'all might be. I don't care how long you've been living. The fact of the matter is this, we better, we better heed this warning because we're going to stand before God one day. Are we ready? Are we ready? Are you ready? You know it could be today. It could be today for those of us that are saved, if the Lord returns for His church, if He comes back to, to take us out of this world, it could be today. And listen, for all of us it could be today, not by the clouds, but maybe by the clouds. Not, 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 by, uh, not by the, uh, the, the ascension up into heaven, but by the descension into the grave. There's not a single one of us that might not be snuffed out before this life is done, this day is done. Fact is, we better get ready because we don't know when this meeting is could be at any moment. And then, I'm not going to preach this, I'm just going to say it. We see the person of this meeting. Who is this God we're going to meet? Well, they had been worshiping false gods. 
But God, God makes clear who He is in verse 13. First, He says, I'm the God of creation. He says, Lo, He that formeth the mountains and createth the wind. The God that created you is the God you're going to answer for. Uh, we owe a debt to our Creator. He gave us life. Amen? And, and we, we owe a debt to Him. He's the God of perception. He says, He declareth unto man what is His thought. God knows exactly what you and I think, what we feel, what we believe, what we've done. There's never been anything that we've ever hidden from God. I like this. Not only is He the God of perception, but He's the God of transformation. He maketh the morning dark. He's able to take the night and turn it into day and take the day and turn it into light. So there's no excuse for us not being born again. There's no excuse for us not having a new life in Him. He's able to translate us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. He's able to change your life. He's able to change my life. He has changed my life. If you'll let Him change your life, He'll change it today. He's the God of transformation. But listen, He's also the God of domination because He treadeth upon the high places of the earth. There's not a place that's not under His jurisdiction. You say, preacher, I don't have nothing to do with God. One of these days, He's going to have something to do with you. The book of Hebrews says that, any, that nothing is, is naked, or that nothing is, is hidden from His eyes. Everything's naked and manifest before His sight. And then this is how the Hebrews writer said it. Before His sight, with whom we have to do. You've got to do with Him. One of these days, you're going to have something to do with Him. You're going to stand before Him. But guess who He is? Listen, there's good news. He's the God of revelation. Because He tells us His name. He says, the Lord, Jehovah, the Lord, the God of hosts is His name. You know what that means? That means He wants you to know Him. Uh, When somebody walks up and tells you their name, they want to get to know you, don't they? You know why God has told us His name? He wants to get to know us. And God has revealed who He is and what He's done for you and how He loves you, not because He's not interested in you, but because He's deeply, eternally interested in you. He's done all this so that He can get your attention so you'll come to know Him as Savior and as Lord. And if you're a child of God, listen, the things in your life are not are not happenstance. They're providence. God is working in your life and mine to get our attention to draw us closer unto Him. So here's my question for you, and it's a simple one this morning. Are you ready to meet Him? Could be today could be today. And guess what? One of these days it's going to be today. could be today. Are you ready to meet Him? If you're here lost without Christ, I can tell you, you are not ready to meet Him. But you can get ready. Uh, the only thing that any, anyone's waiting on is God's waiting on you. Quit trying to get to heaven your own way. Quit trying to rest and rely on your own, your own sense of morality or your own religion or a baptism certificate or, 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 a, or a profession card that you filled out. Quit leaning on those things and instead trust in Christ and Christ alone to save you. And He'll do that for you. And listen, if you're a child of God, I don't know if you're ready or not, but I'll tell you this, we could probably all be a little more ready. I, listen, if, if you don't have little kids, you don't know what that phrase means, be a little more ready. There, there, there's ready and then there's really ready, right? There's ready like we've got one shoe, but we've not located the other shoe. Uh, there's half of them has been washed, but the other half has not yet. And, uh, you know, we've got, we've got one kid. The other one's still missing, but we believe him to be in the vehicle already. We've got one toy, but it's not the favorite toy. And guess what? Like it or not, we're leaving because we're running late. There's ready, and then there's ready. Listen, we all may be ready in the sense of we're going to get there. But let me ask you, what shape are you going to be when you get there? Are you really, really ready? If you're not, let today be the day that you get ready for that meeting. Let's bow together with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Musician's going to come and play at the piano. But you know you don't have to wait for the first note. It's not the music that's played. It's not the, the words that are spoken by a preacher. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with your heart and God. 
And if you're ready to give your life to Him, if you're ready for your life to be different, if you're ready to see God change you and save you, I'm not saying you'll never have problems. I'm saying when you have problems, you'll have a God there with you that's bigger than those problems, that can give you peace and strength. God's waiting on you. Would you be willing to meet Him this morning? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.